0: Welcome to the AO Spine Research Top 10 podcast with Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org.
1: In this episode, we will be hearing about the number 7 priority novel therapies
0: will hear from spinal surgeons Ricardo Rodriguez-Pinto and Mark Cotter, neurologist Julia Furlan and Annie Wandage, person with cervical myelopathy.
1: My name is Dr. Michelle Starkey. I'm a scientist and director of myelopathy.org.
0: And my name is Dr. Benjamin Davies, neurosurgeon, scientist and founder of myelopathy.org.
1: This is the AO Spine Research Top 10 with Myelopathy Matters.
0: So, welcome to this seventh episode in our special series with AO Spine, covering the top research priorities that emerge from AO Spine Recode DCM. Perhaps, Michelle, you could give us a brief reminder of what this is all about.
1: Yes, the AO Spine Recode DCM project is a process that brings together people living with DCM with those that are working on it to establish guidance and to help the global research community be more efficient. And one of the areas of guidance was what should we be researching? This process asked people working and living with DCM to identify the critical knowledge gaps that if solved could help inform care and change outcomes. And it was through this iterative process that these top 10 priorities were agreed upon. We hope that they'll give researchers around the world a clear challenge and that they will help focus attention and investment in the field so that answers will soon follow. And what is priority number seven? So priority number seven focuses on novel therapies, or as the full research question reads, can novel therapies including stem cell, gene, pharmacological and neuroprotective therapies improve the health and well-being of people living with DCM and slow down disease progression?
0: That's right, and to provide some clinical context and background to this question, I first spoke to Dr. Ricardo Rodriguez Pinto, a surgeon scientist at the University Hospital of Porto in Portugal. And I started by asking him how we treat DCM today.
2: At the current point, we don't have much more than surgery to offer our patients. Treatments at this point vary between conservative and surgical treatments. Conservative treatments uh, at the moment range from uh, bracing, uh, analgesics, cervical traction, manual therapy, But uh, studies to date have not shown that uh, patients improve much from conservative treatment. They seem to have very little benefit. And and hence, it is reserved for patients with mild myelopathy, although uh, some studies even suggest that that these patients may do better with surgery. And uh, also to patients with cord compression without symptomatic myelopathy or radiculopathy. So... The, the best tool we have at the current moment to offer our patients is surgery, and this is what we, we do in cases of moderate and severe uh, myelopathy and in cases with uh, progression of uh, symptoms.
0: And what, what do you counsel your, your patients uh, on in terms of their recovery from surgery?
2: We generally believe that uh, surgery for myelopathy was only useful to halt the disease progression, and uh, that it could do very little to improve uh, patients. Uh, actually, recent studies have shown that surgery is able to improve patient quality of life, but this uh, this improvement is still somewhat limited. What I tell them is that whenever they need surgery, it has to be done to stop the disease progression and to create conditions so that they can improve uh, a little bit.
0: It's a real minority who get even close to normality despite offering that surgical therapy. And I guess another area for potential novel therapies is, of course, managing the long-term disabilities associated with myelopathy. If we think laterally to the field of traumatic spinal cord injury, there's obviously a lot of treatment and research into therapies that can support, function, and reduce disability. And and perhaps they may also have a role in, in this patient group.
2: Yes, of course. And and now with, with the, the novel technology, I think we, we need to take advantage of them and to use them to help our patients. And uh, so people with, with spinal cord injuries, uh, acute or myelopathy, they, they experience difficulties with ambulation, uh, wheelchair ch- transfers, bowel and bladder control. And the uh, the industry has produced several assistive devices that can help patients with uh, limited strength or ability to ambulate to become more independent uh, and uh, and also to, to to do their exercises. So treadmills that work without gravity, electrical stimulation. Um, some of these devices are controlled via um, smartphones or watches, um, brain-computer interfaces. So there have been several developments other than the biological treatments that uh, can be very helpful for patients with these conditions.
0: So an exciting future, we hope. And I guess linking back then to the priority number seven, which is about developing new additional therapies. For you, why is this a key research priority?
2: So I did my PhD in uh, development of novel therapies for disc degeneration and disc degeneration is often the inciting insult leading to cervical stenosis and myelopathy. So the treatment or the regeneration of the disc could uh, also help patients with myelopathy. My research was trying to understand which is the ideal cell type to replace the disease intervertebral disc cells, especially the nucleus pulposus cells. And we have a, the expectation that in the future we can, we can aim to regenerate uh, those, those cells. At the present moment, there have been a few studies using mesenchymal stem cells for disc generation. What we can say is that they don't seem to, be to harm or to, to, to place the patients in, in any additional risk. But uh, to date, in clinical studies, the data is still very limited. Animal studies have shown that we can repair and somewhat regenerate the intervertebral disc. But in humans, although uh, these therapies have shown to increase slightly disc height and to reduce the pain, we still need some more evidence to start clinical trials and, and we still need more evidence to pass this to clinical practice.
0: I think that reflects, obviously, that long trajectory, isn't it, from from preclinical to to eventual treatment. And that work obviously speaks to the sort of possibly the the causative pathologies that can cause myelopathy. But obviously here we are also interested specifically in the the spinal cord and, and repair there as well.
2: There have been a few novel therapies that have been presented in the last decade that we thought could help in, uh, in treating patients with myelopathy. One of them was riluzole. Uh, riluzole is an anticonvulsant used uh, to treat patients with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And uh, some animal studies had shown that it could promote functional recovery after a spinal cord injury to modify the Japanese Orthopedic Association score. Uh, showed no differences between patients with uh, surgery and Realazole and patients with just uh, surgery. But uh, there were some improvements, uh, especially in neck pain and neuropathic pain. But there are also other other studies and other substances that, that can be helpful in aiding surgical treatment of myelopathy. One other uh, novel therapy that that's, uh, that's shown some, some interesting results in clinical, in, in animal studies, is Evodilast. And this aims to regenerate the, the spinal cord. It is also uh, used in patients with uh, ALS and multiple sclerosis. And there's currently a phase three clinical trial recruiting patients to see whether the addition of Evodilast uh, to uh, surgery could improve patient
0: outcome. That's right. And I should mention the chief investigator of that trial is Dr. Mark Cotter, who's obviously the PI of the Rico DCM process. And I'm involved in that being a trial led from Cambridge. And, you know, we're very hopeful and optimistic as, as, as one always is at the beginning of trials. And I guess we'll just have to see, see how that pans out. What's your view on steroids?
2: My view on steroids, they've been widely studied uh, in, in the treatment of acute spinal cord injuries. In the in the 1990s, they were high uh, dose corticosteroids were recommended to uh, manage patients in the acute setting of spinal cord injury. Uh, it has been shown that steroids can be helpful if they are started within the first eight hours and for 24 hours after uh, spinal cord injuries. They have shown to reduce post-operative pain and length of hospital stay in patients uh, undergoing cervical spine surgery for conditions other than myelopathy. So I think it's an avenue that could be pursued because uh, it's a little bit, little bit like Rilazole. They may, may not be the, the cure for, for myelopathy, but together with other things, we, we probably we can get somewhere with, with steroids also.
0: Why would answering this question benefit surgeons and and the DCM community?
2: Surgeons are always eager to have better tools to help help their patients. And especially in DCM, we hate to tell patients that we're going to halt the disease, disease progression, but there is very little that we can do to improve them. So we desperately need some novel therapies that can help us improve our surgical outcomes and even to avoid surgery in some of the patients. For me, as a surgeon, this is the more important part, and of course, for the patients, to be able to reverse the disease condition would have a, a much much greater benefit than just halting its progression, with small improvements in quality of life. So they will have less disability, regain independence, remain employed, and this would have substantial benefits. For the patients, for their families, which of course become tied to the condition because they, they sometimes become caregivers, and uh, and also to the society and healthcare.
0: So Ricardo has really summarised our position today. We have essentially two therapies at our disposal: rehabilitation and surgery. And currently, they can offer benefits, but generally, most people are left with disabilities, disabilities they have to live with for the rest of their life.
1: That's certainly the message I took away as well that we need better therapies so that we can have more to offer people with DCM so that they have less disability and retain some independence in their life, which of course will have huge positive benefits for them as well as their families.
0: And it's a goal for many people around the world, and Ricardo references Dr. Michael Failing's recent trial of Rilazole, which is really the first high-quality trial in DCM of a drug which aims to improve outcomes from surgery. Now, sadly, that trial didn't have the um, improvement on function that, that we were hoping for as a community. But I think the, the conduct of that trial has taught us many lessons and hopefully will help usher in a, a new era of, sort of regenerative medicine and, and advances in this area.
1: And of course, the reason why this research is so important is something that Annie Wondage speaks about in her interview. Annie is a respiratory therapist and a person living with DCM. And I started by asking her what the effects of being diagnosed with DCM has had on
3: her and her life. I think DCM has been both positive and negative for me. It has caused me to work a whole lot less than I used to. And uh, when I overdo things, it definitely causes problems. I have a lot of pain and spasticity, so working less has been a big change for my family. I was the breadwinner before now I work part time, but I think it led to a much happier home life for us. so in that way dCM has been a positive thing in my life. But on the negative side, you know it's it, my body's changed dramatically before the uh before the diagnosis, I was a runner. I ran, you know, 15 to 20 miles each week, and you know now that's just not going to happen. So I'm no longer a fitness junkie, which meant, you know, my body changed. I gained weight, so I've had, you know, some real negative side effects too. But you know, day to day, I do feel like things have gotten better. And as my recovery went on, I, you know, I'm about three years out from my surgery, and um, I feel like I'm getting used to my new normal. I did have to switch paths, you know, when I when I went back to work initially, I went back as a teacher because I could not work as a respiratory therapist.
1: That's been really important for you, I can imagine, just sort of mentally being able to go back to work and get back into what you were doing before, albeit, you know, in a slightly altered way.
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it took me a long time to accept that I wasn't going to return to work as a respiratory therapist. It, it took me a long time to realize that I was not going to run again. I remember like right after my surgery, I was thinking, Well, if I'm not a runner and I'm not a respiratory therapist, then who am I? You know, like you define yourself by what you're capable of doing, so it was it was hard. It took me a long time to come to terms with not being a respiratory therapist anymore. But when I was able to return to work as a teacher, I'm teaching respiratory therapy. So I still felt like I was a respiratory therapist, but, you know, not actually giving bedside care was hard. In
1: your opinion, what are the key areas of DCM for which treatments would
3: most benefit people? I think, honestly, I think pain is going to be the number one topic that that people with DCM are consistently going to talk about. I feel like I was super lucky because... I had really good pain control without opioids, which I can tell by what I see on the support group that I'm absolutely the minority there. (laughs) It seems like uh, I got lucky because I got, you know, urgent care very quickly. And so I was able to recover faster. I was also only 40 when I was diagnosed. So, you know, I'm sure my age helped, but I think that, Finding ways to treat pain, especially for people who have to wait a long time to get surgery is going to be the most important area for treatment for for these people because it's like they're just, they can't deal with the pain.
1: I think, you know, you've hit the nail on the head because a lot of people think that this is something that affects old people. And at 43, you definitely can't be classed as old. So we've been talking about it for a long time actually but it's about raising awareness isn't it and making people aware that in your situation this has happened to a really young person and had such a an effect on your life at key time you know when you're you're out there and you know working like you say main breadwinner in your family it you know it has a significant impact doesn't it
3: yeah it definitely did I mean obviously, you know, when it first happened, it was just, I think I've never been so afraid in my life. I, I felt like we were going to lose everything. Like, this is it. Like, I'm going to lose my house. I'm not going to be able to make ends meet, you know? I mean, and things fell into place as they always do. But um, yeah, there was real fear there for a little while. I mean, it, even just, you know, asking the surgeons before I went in for surgery that day, am I going to be able to walk when this is over? and them telling me that they didn't know like that's terrifying you don't know if i'm going to be able to walk or not <laughs> you know like and you know it, it to not have been in an accident like get, i wasn't in a car wreck i didn't fall down a flight of steps you know i, I sneezed and that was it you know, so.
1: the horror of that that unknown like you know i can't even imagine how awful that must have been for you so thank goodness you said you did see some positive effects of the surgery
3: yeah, yeah, I re- I recovered, you know, it took about six to eight months, I guess, um, of rehab that I was in. Um, probably, I was there, I think, twice a week initially, and then once a week um, later on in my recovery. And I was lucky to have really good physical therapists that pushed me um, and, you know, didn't take no for an answer. So um, they got me back up on my feet, you know, within a couple of weeks. And then I guess it was within a couple of months that I was able to walk without assistive devices. But um and you know now I I don't use anything to walk I just have to be careful because I do stumble I walk close to walls if I can because I stumble so much so it's good to not be in the middle of the hallway
1: so what sort of practical solutions or assistive devices do you think would most help people with DTM in supporting them returning to work
3: Yeah this is definitely something that I wish I had had more access to the support group before I Went home from the hospital after my surgery because assistive devices would have been great. The surgeons just kind of send you on your way, you know, and uh, they don't exactly give you advice for what to do when you get home. I know that for me, I realized right away that I would need some help with a lot of things. And the most important things I think I learned were ice, not heat, like was, you know, always ice your neck. I wanted to always put heat on everything. And that was not the right thing to do. It seemed like ice helped me more than heat ever did. Um, I also needed a bed assist device, like a pull bar to help you get up out of bed. Um, Because in the morning, you know, I would sleep, but my legs didn't really work. And I hated that I had to wait for somebody to help me get up out of bed. So having like a pull bar on my bed was so important. Um, and then I guess I used, a, what do they call a, this thing that helps you get your socks on? <laughs> you know, my, do- my surgeons always asked me and my PT always said to wear compression socks to desensitize my legs. Because when I first got out of surgery, I couldn't really walk and my legs always felt like they were vibrating, like they were shaking, but on the inside. Um, So they wanted me to wear compression socks, but I couldn't get them on because I couldn't, my hands didn't work like that. So I had to use this device to help me get my compression socks on. So those sorts of things um, were very helpful. And to this day, still, I'm three years out. But if I try to reach up over my head, I will have spastic triceps. So I can't, I can't reach for anything above my head. So I still use uh, like one of those gripper devices, grabber tool, so that I can get things out of my closets above my head.
1: I'm quite shocked that you're saying that most of this help came from the support group rather than from your therapist or from the hospital. So
3: there really wasn't very much help or advice. No, because after my surgery, they knew that I was going to go for physical therapy. But after the surgery, they wanted me to wait 14 days. It was like, no, no doing anything for 14 days. But in those 14 days, you realize that's when you're home and you're alone and what do you do? You know, So I ended up asking the support group, like, how do you do this? And how do you do that? And that's where I got a lot of that information. And then once I was in PT, my therapist had things I'd never thought of doing. Like she told me to get a brush, a soft brush and brush my legs to try to desensitize them. Like that stuff I would have never thought of. My surgeons didn't really say anything other than we'll see you in a couple of months.
1: That's amazing, isn't it? And so just to get a little bit more information from perhaps people like myself that aren't aware, when you're desensitizing your legs, is that because they're very painful or it's just that you're getting this vibrating? What exactly does that
3: mean? It was, yeah, this vibrating feeling, which I guess, you know, people always refer to pins and needles, um, like this feeling of numbness. And it wasn't like that. It wasn't like numbness. It was like, I really felt like my legs had like an electrical charge on the inside, like they were vibrating. And after a while, it was painful and I wanted it to stop. And um, I found myself constantly rubbing my legs with my hands. And that was when the, you know, my PT said, you know, this is all neurogenic in nature and, you know, you have to try to desensitize your legs. So it was compression socks and brushing my legs with a hairbrush anything to try to make that vibrating feeling stop it eventually did I I still get it sometimes but not like it was back then
1: yeah because I'm wondering how can you sleep with that or do you wear the compression
3: socks I wore them when I slept yeah
1: (laughs) yeah oh wow it's so many things you know the more you discuss DCM with people that have it the more you learn what are your recommendations for addressing priority seven
3: Well, I definitely can't claim to be any kind of expert on spinal cord injuries, but when it happens to you, you know, you find yourself or your husband finds himself (laughs) searching all over the internet, you know, for ways to make you better. You know, we read every study from anti inflammatories and um, drugs that you could take to things that we had never thought of, like metformin as being neuroprotective and tetracycline antibiotics as being neuroprotective stem cells, like things like that. You know, I think my recommendation to a person who has been diagnosed with this is that you have to be able to be your own advocate because you, you have to walk into a doctor's office with some ideas in your head, because when you go in blind, like I did, I, I had no idea what was going on.
1: So you were actually getting papers off the internet and trying to understand them on a sort of neurobiological level and and trying to work out what would be best for you and taking those to your doctors.
3: Yes. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Early on, right after my surgery, when I wasn't, I still really wasn't able to walk. That was when I was, you know, doing the research and learning about Uh, stem cells and, you know, whether or not they can improve my motor function and my sensory functions. And I wanted to learn as much as I could. I mean, of course, I I was never treated with anything like that, but I wanted to know, you know, but I saw after I started to recover in PT and I was getting up on my feet, then I felt like, okay, well, I am going to get better. You know, this isn't forever. I am going to get better. But I still think that you have to be able to learn because like I said, I'm 43. If I start to degenerate as the future goes on, I'm going to want to have those conversations with my doctors.
1: And you want to be sort
3: of armed with the information when you go in there, don't you? You know, the pain relievers, like I said, I got lucky. I, 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 I didn't really have to use any like opioid medications. I do take plenty of anti-inflammatories. And I do, for a long time, I did take Lyrica, you know, for nerve pain, but eventually I weaned myself off of it because it really affected my psychological state. But they talk, you know, they're always talking um, regionally about different medications that they take. Everybody has a different little cocktail of drugs that helps them. It seems like there's a million different drugs out there, but I think it really depends on your tolerance of pain and and how severe your injuries are because, you know, I got lucky. It would be nice if there was a straightforward map that we could use for try this, then try this, then try this, (laughs) but it doesn't uh, doesn't seem like it works that way. I started to practice meditation to deal with my pain. And to this day still, I still meditate every day, 30 minutes a day. And that's a a huge help. And I've heard them on the support group talking about acupuncture. It's definitely something I want to try because they swear by it. (laughs) So, you know, I have never done that yet, but it's something I'm looking into. Like you
1: say, for whatever reason, it's going to come down to, you know, individual preferences and what exact pain they're suffering and, and how it's affecting them. But there's lots out there, <laughs> and also I think it depend on the country, won't it?
3: Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, I, I I don't know how things are in other parts of the world, but in the United States, there is a war on pain medications, so <laughs> you know you you have to really really suffer to to get somebody to give you a medication to handle your pain. Uh, at the gym that I was in, there was a, a hydrotherapy bed, which you just kind of laid in, and water came up out of the bottom of it, and hit all these pressure points on your neck and shoulders. And that helped for sure. I also used a TENS unit a lot and, you know, an uh, external TENS unit that helped. Um, But we looked into everything, even into like spinal cord stimulators, thinking that I was not going to get my mobility back, but eventually I did. But yeah, like even, you know, that idea of getting an internal spinal cord stimulator, some of the people in the support group have talked about having that to help them with mobility. So yeah, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of novel things you can try.
1: Absolutely. And these spinal cord stimulators, I know they're definitely being used in the spinal cord injury field. And going back to the stem cell therapies, has anyone specifically talked about hopes for the future for people with DCM?
3: It goes around in the support group quite a bit, especially for people who are first entering the support group and just first found out about their diagnosis. And that's when you usually get the question, has anybody been able to you know, try stem cells? I think like the conversation seems to always go the same way that we're not a hundred percent sure that it would really do anything. There are some studies out there that say that it can improve motor and sensory functions, but it's cost prohibitive. So maybe the research should be in how can we get the cost down so that people can actually try this. I mean, I do remember reading like a a journal article about using like plasma rich protein to increase the height of the discs in your spine before they start to collapse like as a, a way to be proactive i guess but i mean again it was cost prohibitive so I feel like, okay, well, we're studying it, but nobody can afford it.
1: (laughs) These studies have been going on for literally years, like 20 years or so, looking at various sorts of pain relievers and stem cell therapy and stuff. And, you know, these studies take an awfully long time to work out timings and what you can combine various treatments with and, you know, how they should be given and where they should be given and all of that. It's so complicated, this whole topic. In that interview, Annie kindly shared details of her life changing story with DCM. And what is quite surprising to me is that her experience is very similar to what we hear all the time at myelopathy.org.
0: Unfortunately, Annie today does represent a typical example of, of DCM. And as you say, it really is a life changing disease. You know, we do have some treatments for it, but there is much, much more that we need to do if we're able to give people their lives back. One of the things I found so inspirational listening to Annie is how positive she's been able to remain despite that adversity. I mean, she starts her interview by talking about the positives that she's taken from all this.
1: Yes, and in particular, she seems very highly motivated to try novel therapies that she's been reading about, uh, but of course says that you know they're prohibitively high in cost, so not viable at the moment. But for me, this is really synergistic with what Ricardo was saying. In his case, as a medical doctor, he's frustrated that he can't offer his patients anything new or any better therapies. And then from Annie's side, as someone living with DCM, she's frustrated that they're not there and ready to go.
0: So in short, the healthcare professionals want new solutions and so do the people affected by DCM. So I guess the next question is, what might those solutions be?
1: Well, these were questions that we put to our next guest, starting with Dr. Mark Cotter, who's a surgeon scientist at the University of Cambridge and a principal investigator of AO Spine Rico DCM. I started by asking him, what does he see as the future for treatment in DCM?
4: Surgery as treatment for degenerative cervical myelopathy is very well established. In fact, the first operations that were conducted took place more than 100 years ago. But over the years, what we've learned is that surgery can be quite effective and um, is able to stop disease progression. It only allows for limited regeneration, though. And the principle of surgery is to create space around the spinal cord so that it can regenerate. Obviously, surgery doesn't really operate directly on the spinal cord. We know that we can do surgery from the front or from the back, uh, and there have been many, many studies in this area suggesting that there's no one modality that is better or, or worse. I think the main outcome needs to be to have created a sufficient amount of space of this, around the spinal cord. However, there are still some questions that need to be answered. For example, whether it's necessary to also fix the spine using, for example, instrumentation. And a potential reason why this might be beneficial is that uh, it acts a bit like a cast. If you break a leg, you you put it into a cast and you want to sort of make sure that there's not too much tension so that the bone can heal. And similarly, there is a theory that um, if you cast the spinal cord, i.e. by fixing the neck, you can improve uh, outcomes.
1: So in your opinion, what are the future directions for therapies for DCM?
4: I see two major areas. The first is neuroprotection, which is essentially aiming to preserve function of the spinal cord. And the second is uh, neuroregeneration. So this is trying to restore function uh, that has been lost. I'll comment on neuroprotection first, so really trying to preserve spinal cord function And here. The aim would would be to to possibly delay or even sort of abrogate the requirement for surgery. If that sounds a bit strange, given that cervical myelopathy is a result of mechanical pressure, I just wanted to remind you of the fact that most of us, uh, as we get older, will develop uh, compression of the spinal cord but only a few of us will develop cervical myelopathy. So in many people, the spinal cord has the capacity to withstand a certain amount of pressure. Many, many people have cord compression. In fact, I think it's 80% of the 80-year-olds and only perhaps 10% get cervical myelopathy. So 90% of individuals the spinal cord can cope with the pressure, And so what we really need to do is we need to tap into those mechanisms uh, and and activate them in the 10% that can't cope with the pressure. And if we could tap into those mechanisms, for example, using appropriate drugs, then we could potentially postpone the need of surgery and hopefully even make it unnecessary. And on the neuroregeneration side, the here we're trying to improve outcome after damage has occurred. We can look into drugs that can stimulate the repair processes that are contained in the spinal cord. For example, restoring local connection in the spinal cord, that's called plasticity, or uh, regeneration and restoring the, the glial compartment. So this is the cells that support the nerve cells in, in the spinal cord by enhancing a process that's called remyelination. And again, there's lots of science on which we can build in order to translate such information into clinical trials. And in fact, in Cambridge, we are just starting a trial called Receipt Monopathy that really aims at promoting outcome after surgery. It's quite possible that we can resort to more complex treatment paradigms, even potentially involving cell therapy, or combinations of drugs, we can really build on, on a wealth of scientific data uh, that has been generated, for example, also in the field of traumatic spinal cord injury, but also other maybe not obviously related fields such as MS, etc., cetera, can be extremely instructive.
1: Specifically focusing on the traumatic spinal cord injury field, we know that this is a challenging topic for them as well. What do you think we can learn from them?
4: One thing uh, I think that stands out when we look at our progress in traumatic spinal cord injury is that we need to really involve individuals that are affected. And if you listen to them, then actually you learn that you don't always have to shoot to the stars from the onset. You can take small steps because small changes can have significant effects on, on the quality of life. Of individuals with these conditions. And of course, you know, uh, Recode DCM has actually given us a roadmap and a number of priorities that we can and should focus on to address. So I think that's one learning point. Uh, and the second point, of course, is that there's been huge amounts of research on the basic science side uh, in spinal cord injury. That needs and can be translated into in, the field of DCM. And so we're not starting from scratch, we're actually building on substantial knowledge that's already been gained. What I'm very excited about is that in DCM, if we had the appropriate funding and the resource, I think we can make much quicker progress than in traumatic spinal cord injury simply because the numbers of individuals that are affected are much, much larger. There's orders of magnitudes um, more individuals that are affected by DCM. It's much easier to run a clinical trial in DCM than it is for traumatic spinal cord injury. All in all, I think we can learn tremendous amounts about DCM by looking into traumatic spinal cord injury.
1: So what are your recommendations for approaching Priority 7?
4: So I think it's got to start with raising the profile of cervical monopathy because we need to reach the people that are involved in research and also the funders in order to enable um, this research. And then we need to really be aware of the wealth of basic science knowledge that's out there and we need to start relating this to DCM. I also like to see a transition from traditional lab-based research to a more experimental medicine paradigm, where we can actually look at clinical DCM, and the tools are there already or can be developed. This is, you know, modern imaging technology such as uh, ultrastructural MRI, but also. PET, for example, is a scanner that allows you to detect individual molecules in the spinal cord. And those can you know provide insight of what's happening actually in individuals, in patients that are affected. And so as we increase our understanding of clinical DCM, we can also start migrating towards more modern ways of running clinical trials. And key to that is the definition or the development of, of new outcome measures. These can help to make clinical research more efficient by, for example, migrating to, from a, you know single time point analysis to longitudinal analysis, which collects data 24-7, maybe using smartphones, etc. So it's really using the basic science knowledge, applying it to DCM, refining and building clinical research platform.
0: So Mark speaks very positively about the future, medical or drug therapies that could really make a difference to people with DCM.
1: Certainly some exciting prospects, but there are, of course, other approaches to restoring function after neurological disease. And I spoke to Julio Furlan, who's a neurologist and assistant professor of neurorehabilitation at the University of Toronto, about his perspectives on this priority, and in particular, neuromodulation and robotics.
5: We do have a lot of experience with neuromodulation using functional electrical stimulation, We do have therapies using robotics and uh, some surgical interventions for improvement or for rehabilitation with uh, either tendon transfer or nerve transfer that can improve dramatically the outcome of these individuals when they have a significant neurological deficit before the surgery. As individuals go through a neurological insult uh, such as traumatic spinal cord injury or if they have degenerative cervical myelopathy, the circuit between the periphery such as a hand or a foot to the brain, it is malfunctioned or ruptured. And uh, what neuromodulation can help is in fact trying to stimulate that circuitry to get the best uh, solution in terms of uh, rewiring and getting better working circuitry that can help patients to get better outcomes. If you stimulate the periphery, such as even a simple electrode that is put over the muscle, you can get a better outcome because that circuitry is stimulated more than usual. So there is this adaptive neuroplasticity that is better than just the regular neuroplasticity that you can obtain either doing physical therapy, or doing more activity-based therapies. I just want to mention, for example, there was a study from Dr. Popovich, who did a single case where patient with very severe degenerative cervical myelopathy, based on the imaging, but also his symptoms, underwent a neuromodulatory therapy, such as functional stimulation. And it was phenomenal how much more improvement this individual had with this functional stimulation compared to the regular rehabilitation. This is only a single case report, so we can't rely on that to say that should be the common practice. But just gives give us a hint how important those other solutions can be in the overall success for the therapy for these individuals. We do also have experience now with robotic systems which help also to optimize that neuroplasticity in different ways. When they are not able to move a limb, for example, they can obtain a robot that can be connected with the brain stimulus. And with that stimulus, they can actually activate the limb to move. And so it's a more engineering solution than the actual recovery of the patient per se but in overall brings, again, better solution and the outcomes for this group of individuals that sometimes can have a significant deficit, which limits their activities of daily living and um, including even mobility.
1: So it's experimental treatment at the moment, I'm assuming.
5: The robotic solution is still more experimental than um, available to most of the patients. There are other techniques where instead of uh, stimulating the periphery, such as the hand, they stimulate the actual the reverse from the cortex. So they, what is called the transmagnetic stimulation. And that is also something that we see in some centers as standard of care. The overall approach is always to ask the patient what the goals are in terms of the rehabilitation and tailor all the therapies, including neuromodulation, along with that set of goals, as long as it's realistic and is achievable measurable, but in, in matter of fact in many of them they they want to get it back either mobility, which sometimes can be uh, really um, important for the individual or they want to get it back their function with the hands but um, most of the organizations face it. the limitations terms of financial resources and that's uh, a barrier for progression of these into clinical practice too. what do we see in patients? During the training period, they may not be a solution for the long term because they may not be affordable. Hopefully, we will have more um, available resources and do more work because it is an exciting area. A lot of interest from the patients mainly, but also from the scientific and medical community. And we just need to learn more and um, do better for them.
1: I left these interviews feeling very positive. There's a clear sense that therapies that could help us better treat DCM are on the horizon.
0: It seems we could be at the start of a really exciting time for DCM and also regenerative medicine. I can hear those perhaps more experienced in spinal cord injury cautioning a false dawn, but science is moving quickly and it's not just the science of new therapies, but also the science of how we can establish they are working.
1: Yeah, and I think you're right to be excited because there is a lot of hope and potential. And at turning points like this, what is needed is energy and enthusiasm to get on with obviously the hard work of running these things through clinical trials and investigating their worth.
0: And Mark does remind us all towards the end of his interview, you know, you ask him, how do we approach this priority? And he actually says it starts by raising awareness, awareness that can bring perhaps the commercial investment into this area needed to catalyze some of that progress. I mean, often compare DCM care today to how heart attacks or strokes were treated perhaps 60 years ago. Back then those conditions were managed with best supportive care, sometimes with surgery. And now if we fast forward to the present day, we're in this fantastic era of preventative medicine in those conditions and, and many people now can make a full recovery. And of course a major driver of that progress has been industrial investment, particularly the pharmaceutical industry. And I think some of these questions, some of these progresses that we've been hearing about in these interviews, are the kind of things that industry can get behind and perhaps really push forward.
1: Yeah. And I guess that's why raising awareness was thought to be the number one priority.
0: Exactly. So all that remains to be said is thanks very much to our guests, Ricardo Rodriguez-Pinto, Annie Wandich, Mark Cotter, and Julia Furlan for joining us. The podcast was researched by Elizabeth Roberts and produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV.
1: There's lots of information to be found at www.aospine.org forward slash recode. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with the next item, number eight in our top 10 myelopathy research priorities from Aospine, the socioeconomic impact. Don't miss it.
0: And to make sure you don't, why don't you subscribe via your favourite podcast app? But until then, goodbye.